Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dr. Harry Kuhan. Dr. Kuhan joined the care oncology team in June of 2019. He completed his undergraduate medical training at Imperial College London, where he graduated with a BSc in surgery and anesthesia. He performed his foundation and core medical training in London, working at hospitals such as St. Mary's and St. Bartholomew's. Following a research fellowship at Bart's Cancer Institute, where he gained laboratory experience targeting metabolic pathways in cancer stem cells and circulating tumor cells, he went on to develop translational phase one trials based on his preclinical work. Dr. Kuhan continues to play an active role in clinical research and drug development. His strong background in mainstream oncology coupled with his trials experience and research work in metabolic targeting make him an excellent fit with the existing medical team at the clinic. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Kuhan, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Dr. Kuhan. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I am so looking forward to speaking with you today. Hi, Haley. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Likewise, really looking forward to our conversation today. And, you know, first, I would just love you to share a little bit about your background and what led you to do your work in care oncology. Yeah, of course. Um, So I trained in medical oncology, uh, which is basically the specialty that prescribes chemotherapy, systemic treatments like chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted biological agents in solid tissue cancer. Um, So one of the various training pathways I found oncology was my kind of calling relatively early on and spent rotations in central London at various centres of excellence there, including University College London, the Royal Marsden and Fulham and St. Bartholomew's Hospital in Barbican. Um, After gaining a lot of experience, I obtained a national training number, um, which sort of took me through the kind of the the, the more senior aspects of training in oncology. Um, And I also pursued a career, well, in what we call early phase clinical trials, so phase one and two trials in solid tissue cancers, being a lead sub-investigator on various studies in gynecological breast, lung, and hematological cancers. Um, my, my time, you know, also involved some stint in research where I spent time in the labs working against pancreatic cancer stem cells and looking at different modalities of intervening and killing such, uh, such dastardly cells using various integrated options, including the metabolic approach and repurposed medicines. And it was about four and a half years ago where I kind of, my, my interests were found to seemingly align with Care Oncology Clinic, and I took the opportunity to try and carve my own path. And I took over as a medical lead for Care Oncology Clinic in the United Kingdom. And so that's now my full-time job. Um, You know, I I oversee the clinic and sort of the the runnings and of course the the, the patients that we have coming through the UK base, but I'm frequently in contact, of course, with the American team um, who are very well established now in the US as well as Care Oncology. So that's a little bit about me. Well, amazing because you were a conventionally trained oncologist. And I'm just curious, what made you change, you know, maybe to more functional? Were you thinking, okay, something's not working? Regular standard treatment is just not, not doing it by itself. Really good question. I've had a lot of time to self-reflect on that. Uh, You know, I, in all honesty, 
you, when you're a trainee and you go into oncology, you're used to moving from one job to another, and your job, in, in, in essence, is trying to memorize a protocol. You know, you could argue that's only job, getting into a routine, you know, but again, essentially what we do in conventional medicine is, you know, if you are have a certain type of cancer of a certain stage, it's predefined what's going to happen. You know, you go to an MDT or you can have a surgery or you can have the chemo. The chemo regime is already well known. As you know, it's relatively unimaginative in gynecological cancer, cervical cancer, and of course, ovarian cancer, carboplatin, paclitaxel, maybe avastin, recently HARP inhibitors, but not much has changed. So when you're in it and you're in the middle and you're a junior, you're obsessed with, of course, memorizing how to treat each individual. You move on to another rotation of another tumor speciality, you focus on learning that. With a little bit more experience, you start to see or feel that it's all very much a conveyor belt. Um, everyone is kind of treated in the same way, population medicine, I guess that's how it functions. But there are nuances that are often missed. And it was really my stint away in research that really kind of, I guess, turned me off wanting to stay the course and continue in the conventional oncology sort of practice. And that's because, I guess, one, when you when you do the research and you see and you're open to a new way of thinking, as opposed to being a physician, a doctor in a lab is a very different kind of doctor. You look and you read and you research into your project. Of course, you spend time looking at reams and reams of publications and you find, oh my gosh, metformin does this. Oh my goodness, statins do this. Oh my gosh, there is a, there's something to this, you know, low glycemic diet. And you start to feel, see all these pieces, but not really figure out how to work them into your practice. And it was when I did early phase clinical trials and started working in new age medicine, new innovative techniques and strategies, where again, you're very overwhelmed. You're seeing, oh my gosh, there are these sciences that I have no awareness of. I was never taught any of this. And, you know, let's look at this. Let's look at combining immunotherapy with chemotherapy and lung cancer. Lo and behold, within a year or two, licensed for you. So you're seeing these innovative techniques. You're aware of these nuances that you aren't really integrating into your practice. It makes it very difficult to then want to go back uh, and go back into a sort of tunnel visioned world. So for me, I'm the conventional doctor in me will always say everything we do in conventional medicine is based on the highest caliber of data, you know, scientific method, clinical trials. So, you know, solutions, guidelines derived in the right way, but there's never enough of it. And that's the problem. The problem is this variation of durability of response. You, you give a patient this and you counsel them, you consent them, you get them on a treatment. How long will it work for? Two months, 20 years? And with all those uncertainties there, the I guess the simulation in my brain was what else can we do? Can we do more? Can I can I draw upon anything else that I know? And you know, not try and disturb or step on the toes of any anything anyone else is doing in the conventional sense, but try and be more well-rounded. Um, you know, and, and that's often what we find well, most of the doctors in the clinic find ourselves trying to navigate this fine line between let's label it conventional versus alternative, whatever that means. Alternative is basically everything non-conventional, I guess. But we often find our ourselves traversing that line, trying to to get the best of both worlds and be supportive and non-abrasive. And I think that growingly we're all aware from the different specialisms, integrative oncology and functional medicine, etc., that there is clearly worth in doing doing so. And with that lack of capacity in the mainstream sense and the sort of the put together of the system, you often don't have the opportunity to embrace anything else. And so I think the appeal for me was certainly to try and carve my own path. And I think I'd been, as I said before, a little bit overstimulated, a bit, bit more way, made aware of the other things out there. And I guess the luxury to sort of have a little bit more self-reflection and think about things and be less abrasive. But good for you because we need more doctors like that that are willing to look elsewhere yeah. to see how they can help their patients. So bravo to you. Thank you. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, it's it's not easy. It's not easy to leave the mold. It, it certainly isn't. I mean, you know, fascinating. Obviously, we'll delve into the care oncology eventually. But you know, I I was scared. I was I was I was definitely afraid. I was afraid of of having worked in in big centres in central London, the pushback I might receive, or you know, the the credibility, you know, or the attack on any credibility I might receive. And interestingly, it never happened. Uh, you know, and so you know, this is the thing. As a junior, you don't have the experience to break the mold. It's ingrained into you to say, oh, if a patient asks you about a reform to diet, no. 
just eat what you like. Um, you know, just just carry on and do as you are. It's fine. Don't worry. Um, you know, uh, things like this, you know. And so it's you don't know why you're doing it, but you're doing it. Um, someone brings up Jane McKellen's work. Oh, no, no. It's not proven in scam artistry. It's, there's no randomized controlled trials. It's ingrained into us to think in that way. And it's when you have the freedom of thought, I think, when you're away from that sort of environment that you can then reflect back in and you can best and definitely be a more well-rounded doctor. But yeah, but certainly I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Yeah, that is amazing. And, you know, I'd love you to go over the protocol that Care Oncology does. Absolutely. No, thank you. I mean, thanks for, for, for asking. I mean, it's... um. It's a straightforward one. So my job is pretty easy, okay? And that's because really, you know, as I mentioned, I mentioned that buzzword metabolism. So the two themes I would say of the clinic are, one, the importance we believe of suppressing metabolic dysfunction in the body. So cancer cell metabolism. Number two is the use of off-label or repurposed agents, really. Now, the off-label thing is pretty logical if you think about it, right? Look at the thousands of agents we have access to, figure out which of those might have anti-cancer qualities, and if they're relevant and safe enough, get them into the hands of patients to try and benefit from. That's the ethos, okay? The reality, of course, is that medicines, agents, they can be dangerous. They can interact badly. They can harm the liver. They can mess with conventional treatment. Not everybody gets on with medicines in the same ways as others might. So a bit of a minefield. And Care Oncology Clinic applied some thought to those problems pretty early on, 2013. So built by a very organic story, actually. There was a group of doctors, chemists, you know, intellectuals who essentially scrutinized a lot of the data available. So you know, you'll hear about different versions, formulations of data, observational studies, population studies, preclinical studies, laboratory-based studies, and petri dishes. So they looked at a lot of the different data sources, and they, they drew upon the outcome, of course, of a big study called the Redo Project, which identified 290 agents. And they said, okay, let's, to this list, apply some logical criteria. Let's pick the medicines or agents that are safe to use in the community that won't cause horrible side effects that are the most well-established. I thoroughly published about in academic literature, not just, I mentioned before, traditional experiments in mice cells, but translational data in living, breathing human beings and the test of time. Let's pick the medicines that are safe to use in combination and those that are inert enough to not disrupt the conventional treatment, because that would be inexcusable. And what we ended up with were a list of four medicines, actually, which are commonly prescribed by our general practitioners practitioners every day to this day. And so, you know, tells you a little bit already about the kind of the, 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 the tolerability, the safety profile of the medicines that we're talking about. And, and really the intention, I mentioned this word metabolism, and we use that word, as I'm sure you all know, but we use that word metabolism in common day language. Look at that person over there. They can eat whatever they like. They don't put on weight. They've got great metabolism. They're burning up their stores naturally really well. So if we take that and put it, that term into the context of a cancer cell, Simply put, the ability of the cell to drag nutrition into itself from its surroundings to incorporate into its sort of cellular processes by which it creates energy to use for growth, division, and spread. So hindering cancer cell metabolism, you're trying to affect the energy harnessing ability of the cell. And if you do so, you can slow it down, it can become erratic and dysfunctional in a dysfunctional state. It's easier for the immune system to seek and destroy it. That's the job of the immune system. And by overall weakening the cell via harnessing and suppressing these mechanisms, Organisms, you can kill it easier. You can enhance the effects of the killing strategies. So the intention of the metabolic approach, just narrow-mindedly, was never to replace anything, compete with anything. It was to get more weapons into the arena of cancer medicine to aim for better, whatever better means, a more, a more enhanced response to treatment, durable response, maintenance of remission in the preventative setting, et cetera, et cetera, but aiming for better. And that's kind of, you know, in line with the ethos of a lot of your podcasts, a lot of what the patients are interested in and the integrative approaches and the functional medicine practices, et cetera, doing what we can that's tangible, that's, you know, we can do in the confines of our own environment to, to aim for better outcomes. And this is something that's now mirrored more and more and more in the research as it comes out when we talk more about insulin resistance and we talk about metabolic syndromes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that, in essence, is the aim and the ambition of the protocol. The medicines we use are well known. They've been in circulation often for over 50 or 60 odd years, numerous publications and papers of their relevance and worth. But we aren't really believers of one hit wonders, right? So we don't believe that taking 
one particular drug like metformin on its own will magically do the job. We understand there are very complicated mechanisms and pathways, as Jane, I'm sure, must have alluded to herself in her talk with you. And she's able to ream all of this off and this off. And I did research in metabolism and I don't still understand it. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. But I think for us, it was kind of a compromise whereby we were trying to say, look, yes, there are 40 different things and one can give a clever one-liner about each individual pathway and each individual agent, but it's logistics that are most important because you can be as academic as you want, but how much can your body absorb? And, you know, how are we going to maintain your liver function? If something goes wrong and you're on many, many different things, how can we know what the problem is? So it was more of a launch pad, a starting point, and that's been the better way it's been appreciated, certainly by Jane um, and, and many of the patients who have come our way primarily because of Jane's work, to be absolutely honest. And it's a starting point, a launch pad, where we can talk about the individual mechanisms and the way cancer cells feed off fats and sugars and glutamines and angiogenesis and the importance of trying to target cancer stem cells but it's it's a it's a way in it's a way in to start something in something in a way that's not too much of a stretch of the imagination uh, and i think that's one of the main factors about the protocol and how it resounds with most with a lot of people and why they sign up do any of these off-label drugs help with the stem cell because yeah i think that's the main problem right conventional medicine they go in they kill the cancer cells yeah and then there's these stem cells that are still there and years later people get a recurrence they just appear yeah they recur and they, they 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 exactly you're so right i mean the majority of the cancer cells we refer to as circulating tumor cells so they're the, the rapidly growing fast dividing ones where chemotherapy typically homes into these rapidly dividing cells and executes them so that's why i often say we're good at putting out fires often. Um, we can use these toxic, barbaric, but effective tools. Um, but the issue is often these less than 2% dormant, uh, or the, these, these cancer stem cells that can lay dormant or quiescent and reactivate and lead to resistant mechanisms and new progenies of recurrent uh, of resistant cells, hence recurrent. So that's certainly why, I mean, metformin is known to be a potent killer of cancer stem cells. Doxycycline as well is an antibiotic in our protocol, a very potent killer of the cancer stem cells. Patients often also, you know, incorporate other elements and other agents such as, you know, uh, um, supplements in particular, let alone the integrative therapies like intravenous vitamin C in combination with doxycycline. So there are, there are certainly agents in our protocol that do kind of compensate for the stem cells. And that's kind of what, what I guess I alluded to in the way that this protocol can also be used as a preventative treatment. Because that's another big issue, you know. Another big issue is that you know once the the the, the conventional treatment is finished, chemotherapy, etc., it stops. And then more often than not, a patient's in the surveillance period where they might have a scan every three or six months. They may not even have a scan. You know, patients who maybe have uh, surgery for breast cancer who go on to a, you know a maintenance treatment like tamoxifen are then told, look, you'll have an annual mammogram. Um, otherwise, come back to us if you see a problem. Um, so, so again, in this kind of ambition to kind of be more proactive and prevent, this certainly again ties into this as well. Mm, that's fabulous. Now, what would you say the benefits are of the off-label drugs, you know, in terms of does it help side effects of treatment, that kind of thing, and, and survival rates? So to the first question, I mean, yes. So there's a term metabolic syndrome, which I'm sure you're aware of. It's basically a head nod to the understanding that metabolic dysfunction is an underpinning hallmark of many disease states, um, heart problems, inflammation disorders, aging, obesity, et cetera, cancer, of course, as well. So we're aware that these metabolic problems and dysfunctions can, can occur throughout. And, and of course, having cancer can put you in this kind of cohort, can put you in this position whereby your physiological state is different. It's in a, your body is a more of a hospitable state for cancer, such as the term insulin resistance, I'm sure you're well aware of as well. So insulin resistance, as an example, is, um, is this physiological state. So insulin is a molecule, the pancreas creates it, diabetics inject it. It's a molecule that attaches to a cell surface receptor and tells the cell to open up to sugar. So sugar goes inside the cell and the circulating levels of glucose can fall. So that's the typical physiology. In insulin resistance, there's less of this listening. There's, they don't listen to the insulin molecules as easily as they should. So there are higher circulating levels of insulin, sugars, and as a consequence, propagating factors for cancer, such as insulin growth factor. 
So one of the big reasons we use metformin is actually to try and suppress insulin resistance. Um, there's often this falsehood that it's just about sugars. It's not really as simple as that. It's more about this insulin resistance, but at the same time trying to suppress various mechanisms or pathways that can allow the cancer cells to feed off sugars on a cellular level when you hear about mTOR and other sort of you know, other other sort of factors. So metformin, if you think about it, diabetic drug used in heart disease, so diabetes is a risk factor for heart disease. We're talking about insulin resistance and trying to create this inhospitable environment for cancer. You're absolutely right. So by by trying to apply these pressures on these metabolic dysfunctions, such as sugar overload or, for example, the statins role in cholesterol and fats and fatty acids. We're preventing other issues that can be more pronounced or more evident when you have a when you have a diagnosis of cancer. You could be more risk of heart problems, more risk of strokes, more risk of cardiovascular issues in general, and inflammation and inflammatory states that again can be as conducive and sort of perpetuate even worse the further worsening of the cancer. So so 100 percent we do believe that this is indeed helping with prevention of sort of side effects, adverse effects. You know, thereby improving the tolerability of the chemotherapy. But on another level to what you asked about, which is maybe the other end of the spectrum, progression-free survival, overall survival. So we ran a study called the metric study, just as an example, where we looked into using our protocol in a, in a, a sort of amended form with higher sort of doses of certain agents and trying to use it as an adjunctive protocol in brain cancer, or we call glioblastoma. Glioblastoma being a primary brain cancer, unfortunately, a disease of the young that can have terrible prognoses. Um, but we were able to show that by applying our protocol in combination with chemo radiotherapy, we were able to significantly improve survival and overall survival. So from the positive signals there and the positive signals we've seen in our own internal audit of our data, prostate cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, we're seeing that we're getting better outcomes. And actually, when expected, you know, often we have patients who reflect to us you know, I, I, I was so happy to see my surgeon and my consultant the other day. According to them, I should have been dead a year ago. Uh, you know, like, you know, proving people wrong in that kind of weird, archaic, dark way is, is something that we like to hear a lot about. So we see this, and this is kind of what we meant. I mean, we we are with podcasts like this, with the work Jane McClelland is doing, with how we're trying to maintain, you know, a good reputation and standard of care. We want to get patients early. So we want to get patients when they've just been diagnosed, when literally, you know, they're, they're obviously, you know, when the trauma is somewhat settled and the strength and presence of mind is there. If we can get this done as early as possible when the cancer is naive or is low volume, we can again aim to get this metabolic approach as effective as possible and the outcomes will, of course, be optimal. You know, When I started here in the clinic some four years ago, most patients I met were stage four patients and patients that had progressed through multiple lines of treatment. I still see such patients today, but more and more, particularly over the last year, I meet many, many patients, maybe over 50 to 60% of our patients that have just been diagnosed or just completed their first line of treatment. And that's where we like to apply the metabolic approach as early as we possibly can to aim for the best possible outcomes. Okay. Got it. So how do people find you? I mean, is it through podcasts like this? Do you work with other oncologists or does, is that something that doesn't happen? It's all of the above. Yeah. No, so it's all of the above, to be honest with you. So we, I will say, so with us in London, in the UK, we are limited with how we can advertise our treatment. So we don't really openly do so in the United Kingdom. It's a bit different in the US. Um, so a lot of patients come our way having read about us via Jane McClelland, via, again, social media, social media forums. But there are consultants more and more now that are know, know of us and know of our reputation that do refer in. It's been a slow and steady uphill battle because what you often have to do at the very start is kind of fend off this sort of sectioning off or putting us as some sort of alternative doctors that, you know, just are just trying to flog a bunch of off-label medicines. Um, but with time and effort and the results, that slowly changed. So now we have referrers that refer directly into us. And again, you know, this is a really good point to say that, you know, part of our we're always learning. So, so we've put a lot of dedicated time into putting together this protocol and executing it. And, and actually, you know, we, we always pride ourselves with kind of trying to have a finger on the pulse of the kind of landscape of the metabolic health. So we kind of call ourselves and term ourselves metabolic oncologists, whether that exists is a true thing, I don't know. But, but what we try and do is incorporate more of what we're hearing about as effective, i.e., the importance of diet, the importance of sleep, the importance of exercise, the importance of, you know, lowering stress. And actually our program is in the process of an evolution. 
Um, so in, in London, you'll find there are packages, the COC Core Program, the COC Plus Program, but we're due to open a new package. We're going to call it, we haven't really defined the name, but we'll call it Care Oncology Clinic. Uh, the next generation, shall we, for now, that's me. Um, and that's due to start in the new year. And what it's based around is the fact that we are aware that there are biochemical markers, blood tests that can be performed that give us numerical values, that actually give us insight into metabolic and inflammatory health. Whereas before we were focusing on getting the medicines on board in a cautious manner, starting at the lowest possible doses, escalating dependent on the person's situation and what treatments they were receiving, how well they were, how their bloods were. This is the importance of the physician oversight. Um, but we were kind of you know, using the medicines and calibrating the doses to the individual based on toxicities. I Let's go to a certain level and maybe let's go, let's not go too high because that might do this. And or let's go, let's not go too low. Let's lower things based on the adverse effects. But actually that's not necessarily a great way of collecting data and certainly outcomes to one of your questions from earlier. So what we've decided to do, and again, a lot of doctors put a lot of time into looking into the, the research behind this, is offer a package where actually we can get some curtailed blood tests and more niche blood tests that aren't typically done in your standard blood. So I mentioned insulin resistance. We can do fasting insulin. We can do fasting glucose. We can get a score for insulin resistance. And with the numerical data, we can then say into the individual, here's your score. Well done. You're doing a brilliant job. Let's validate that your interplay of exercise and diet and whatever we're prescribing you is doing a great job on the sugar scores. Let's look at your long-standing true control of your HbA1c or glycase team or globin. Let's look at your cholesterol scores. Is there a room to go up on your statin dose or are we overdosing you or underdosing you? So numerical data, let's talk about stress. Let's look at your cortisol levels. So cortisol, a glucocorticoid, it can stimulate sugars. So in times of extreme stress, if the outlets aren't good, you know, let's have a conversation about it. Let's talk about let's talk about meditation. Let's talk about yoga. Let's talk about you and what you want to do and how you cope. You know, is there anything else I can do? Can we talk about your sleep, which is just as important? Are you able to sleep? Are you not able to sleep? What do you think is driving it? Let's have a forum. We can talk about that. And is there any additives that I can recommend as a doctor that might help? Um, so all of these things, you know, we, we, we kind of have, have embraced and embraced and thought, okay, let's do this structure. Let's, let's draw upon our skill set, doctors, you know, used to looking at bloods, aware of the course of the chemotherapies and the blood work disturbances and the immunotherapies and the nuances there. You know, let's, let's see if I can be constructive and say, well done, or you need to do better. Let's, let's talk about how you can do better. What are you eating? How are you eating? When are you eating? You know, all of these things that no one cares about or talks about in the conventional sense, you know, you know, and if I was, you know, listening to myself, you know, if my four-year-old self was listening to me now, I'd be quite bewildered, uh, you know, but, uh, but this is the thing you learn, you learn, we can only learn and embrace and and things in that are relevant. Um, I always say to patients, so I was born in London, my parents are Sri Lankan, hence my long first name. And um, so I'm raised, in, I'm raised from a culture of Ayurveda. So Ayurvedic medicine, Southeast Asian herbal medicine. Um, never believed in it, <laughs> obviously. Raised in the West, you know, go on, dad, get some paracetamol and some ibuprofen. <laughs> but you get a bit humbled when you realize, okay, wait a minute, why is everyone taking turmeric? Why is everyone talking about garlic and ginger all of a sudden? Why are people talking about ashwagandha and neem and black seed oil? And then if you just put a bit of dedicated time into looking into why, you realize, oh yeah, there's this generational knowledge from thousands and thousands of years and who am I to question it with my limited experience and time and so you get a bit humbled you know when you realize that you don't know everything and that you are a glass half full you can absorb this information and so that's why I'm so grateful to see that we've kind of evolved this this program we want biomarkable data because actually with numerical values you can again you can get conclusion you can draw conclusions quicker um, so if you if you start with a patient point A in time before starting our protocol, um, you know, their bloods may not be ideal. They may have high insulin scores. Their insulin resistance may not be great. Their cholesterol may be off. Their inflammation markers like LDH and GGT, et cetera, may be off as well. So then let's dedicate some time to talk about those numbers and aim for better. You repeat the bloods in three months or six months and you see whether you've achieved that. And with that data set, you can get, you can churn out academic publications quicker because that's also what we need to be aware of and you know be very realistic about. I mean, this is again, the difference between us. We want to use by a biomarker study we want to get data out there quicker we want to run a actually if we're starting to start a pilot study in london because we want to get you know our initial maybe 30 to 60 patients get some data published academically because it's when you publish academically ultimately 
you open the door to discussions with the, the mainstream doctors better, don't you? And and then you you again open for scrutiny, but that's a good thing um, because you can learn from that. You can move forward. You can expand. You can have associations with academic institutions, um, and you can get more data in. And with that, again, more awareness, and therefore more and more people sign on on, on and, and obviously benefit. Fabulous. I mean, it sounds like precision medicine. It's going to be more yeah. personalized to to the patient. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly it. The ethos here is test, don't guess. You know, you know, what's the point of just talking around things and saying, take this, this? Well, why don't we say, well, let's look at those numbers. What else can we do about those numbers? And that's your target. But here's what we're aiming for. Let's see if we can do it together. Um, and, and let's have that dedicated time and forum to use it. So it's just, just trying to draw upon precision medicine, scientific rationale, logistics, put it all in together, you know, and really, as we said at the start, aim for better, you know, and if someone's in a better metabolic state, clearly they're going to do better. And that's been validated by many trials in the last sort of four to five years, actually, many different tumor types. Excellent. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfulcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. I was wondering, are there certain cancers that do better with your protocol than others? That's a good question. So um, difficult to say. I mean, we haven't really compared, you know, outcomes, I guess, you know, amongst the different tumor types because it's so different. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, so for example, uh, even in the, in, so we'll take breast cancer. In breast cancer, there are different types of breast cancer. ER, estrogen-driven cancers, HER2 negative or positive cancers, and now there are more and more mutations being found. Pick through PIK3CA, PDL1 positive. Um, and so then you think about it, like it, it all then comes down to when does a patient sign on? Like do this, does a patient sign just after diagnosis or have they been pre-treated? So it's really difficult to weave out, you know, because of all these different compounding factors, um, certainly even one tumor type, like how well one does. And that the signals we get, are, as I mentioned at the start, sort of starting as early as possible, having other options conventionally to use integratively or adjunctively tends to lead to better outcomes. But I wouldn't say, like, I, you know, the thing about the solid tissue cancers is that there's a lot of overlap in one way, but there's a lot of differences in the other way. So the overlap is that cancer needs to eat. And what can it eat? It can eat the stuff that's available to it. What's available to it? Sugars, fats, and amino acids, proteins, glutamines. So in a way, the stage four cancers all are kind of similar. But I think the positive signals are more or less about which types of cancers benefit more, but more about where in the journey you join it and what other options you have available to you to use integratively, all right? So I think that seems to be the message, but we get, I mean, so we started with brain cancer, but we're seeing a lot of success in all the breast cancer subtypes, ovarian cancers, um, cervical cancers, um, um, the prostate cancers in particular. And I say there are others, but we've, we've looked at our data in those subsets more so in the last year or two than the others. And this is again, part of the reason why we're so keen to, to get on with this new COC platform because because actually with the numerical values we can draw those conclusions just to the to answer the questions you've just asked a lot quicker right and i'm wondering does anyone choose to use your protocol that doesn't want to do treatment that yeah good question again said you know what i'm not going to do regular treatment 
and you, we meet patients from all kinds of situations, scenarios, backgrounds. So it's always really, it's really important to always talk to the individual and scope out what their situation actually is. Because where is that coming from? Is it because I've had a horrific you know, consultation with a doctor that I've got no rapport with that completely turned me off. You know, just I've got, you know, it was, it was a horrible interaction and that's what sent me off the wrong path. Or I've got a personal story whereby I've seen it not work, friend, family, whatever it is, and I told myself I would never, ever do it. Or is it because I'm older and I don't think I'd tolerate it? It's not, you know, I've had enough time in my life to know what I want to do and this is just what I want to do. So you have to explore, the, again, like the individual circumstances. And I think anyone that tends to say, look, you know, up front, I, I don't want to do this, I want to do that. We're very careful to kind of try and have an initial conversation with them prior to booking anything in to say, all right, what's going on? We're normally booked in with a doctor to say, okay, what's up? What's going on? Is it there? My job is to always be honest and reflect onto the patient what I believe is good for them, but again, know my place. Um, every individual has a right to decide what's right for them, but it's for me to always, and this is again part of the conventional doctor in me to kind of because I, I pride myself as being a better communicator than maybe a lot of doctors that I see in oncology, which is weird. But I, actually, if I can just have that on the level with respect conversation and just say, you know what, like, you know, is this the reason? Okay, I, I respect your decision. But, you know, it, just from what I've seen and drawn, like it, maybe it's better we do it in this direction, this sequence of events. What do you think? And then put it out there. And if we can have, you know, a, just a decent conversation, no emotions, no abrasiveness, and I put it out there and I know I put it out there and the patient still wishes to proceed in their own in their own right, it's their right to do so. And that's all there is to it. But I would be doing a disservice to them and to me if I didn't at least, you know, again, drawing upon my ability to just try and explain things in a rational, calm manner. Well, nine times out of 10, when I do that, patient reconsiders. Because that's the power of communication, as you know, right? That's the power of, of communication, love, respect. You know, this is your right. This is your thinking. I'm not trying to encroach anything. Just from what I've seen, this might be a better way to do things. What do you think? That's such a good way. That's such a good way to approach it. It is, right? I mean, and, and the verb I try and get across, so the, I love the verb integrate, right? The, the verb integrate to me means this, 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 like do everything, you know, in unison, in harmony, and find an equilibrium and just get it all on. And um, why pick one thing or pick another thing unless there's a really, really good reason to do so. Um, uh, but yeah, but that, that's all you can do because everyone's different and I don't know everything. And so all I can do is just talk on the level and see. And if it's positive, it's positive uh, and that's it. Right. I mean, I coach so many people who say, my oncologist just has no bedside manner, just doesn't care about me at all. And, yeah. you know, it's very difficult for the patient if they if they don't have confidence in them or comfortability, it's not going to go as well. It's distressing, isn't it? I mean, when you, I'm sure you've come across a lot of patients that are the same, same here, right? So I see, I see, I, I, I now, so, so I try not to sound too one-sided. Like I, I guess I have the luxury of time in my consultations to be a better doctor. Right. So so I, I engage with patients about the conventional side of things. I always introduce myself formally. I, I acknowledge that I, that I want them to know that I know what they're going through from a doctor sense to give them that comfort. All right. Which often is, is well appreciated. Um, but then I, I can then go on and talk about all the other stuff. And often a doctor, I guess, in this sort of environment, certainly here in the NHS, they don't have the time, you know, they, they have to put a smile on the face of, you know, doing a blood test, organizing a scan, dictating a letter and, you know, in a 10 to 15 minute appointment and seeing a 40 patient clinic. And so they don't get to be as good a doctor as they probably would be or could be. So I'm lucky. So, but I use that luxury and I use that time to therefore be a doctor. Talk about trials. Let me, have you looked up clinical trials? Have you been referred? Are you aware of these mutations to ask about? Are you aware of next generation sequencing? Do ask the question. I find all my patients often the right questions to ask as well but you're quite right the number of times oh this doctor you know he doesn't even look at me um you know if i try and talk to this doctor about anything else he shuts me down he says it's all a waste of time it's so disheartening i don't know if i can tell him what i'm doing uh you know and this is again this is very this irritates me uh but once or twice you hear okay the doctor says to a patient if you're doing anything else i'm not going to treat you um, if I find out you're doing, you know, and you just think, what the hell? Like, what? like, how can you be such a bully in such a situation where a patient's feeling weak and they're coming to you as the doctor, um, you know, for that guidance, for that inspiration, for that hope? But, uh, but yeah, it's sad. It's sad. We see this a lot as well. Exactly. 
And I just wanted to ask you, what does a consultation look like? How does someone, you know, they just call in and and make a consultation and then what do they need to do? We publish everything on our website. So we've got a very well-informed, well-put-together website, you know, just on a, on, a, on a separate note. I mean, for anyone looking to just get a little bit of, of more insight into the, the research behind the, the protocol and put together, we have a fantastic US, US website where you can do a click down and you can look at the various uh, articles and publications that support the use in various tumor types. There will be a, a page which will tell you how to connect with us, so sort of, you know, the contact details for the clinic and a, and a simple pro forma that can be filled in. What will typically happen is a case manager will review the case and they'll request the various information that they need from a patient, typically up-to-date bloods, um, you know, a, a medical questionnaire that we ask a patient to fill in, uh, maybe a recent clinic letter that just, again, just gives us an up-to-date sort of uh, readout as to where we go, what's going on, diagnosis validated. Um, and then that's normally reviewed. Um, the information is reviewed and the suitability assessed and then the patient will be booked in for a consultation with one of the doctors uh, but our, our, our website's pretty well informed and it'll, it'll give you the, the full kind of readout and the steps to take okay perfect you know really before we get into random round i just wanted to ask you one last thing and sure and it's just any last pointers advice that you would give to someone who is listening that may have just found out they have cancer and are overwhelmed thinking, what do I do now? Yeah, I mean, so everybody's different. Everyone processes emotions differently. So when you have the presence of mind to think about anything and you get over that trauma, that initial trauma, it's about picking up the fight, basically. It's about taking the fight to the cancer. It's about not being defined by this scary term that we've heard about in our youth is to say, look, okay, okay, okay. Well, we live in 2023, nearly 2023. What's happened? What's the new innovative you know, breakthroughs? What, what, what can I access? What are the questions I need to ask? This is often the big thing. When you go into a consultation and you meet a doctor, you've probably not got the strength of mind. You're probably still in a trauma, traumatic state where you don't know what to ask. You don't know what to ask. Once that's calmed down, and this is where people if they're after the luxury benefit of knowing somebody that's gone through it or a cancer coach or you know a, a relative a family a friend member this is where they can be of most use okay let's sit down and let's think about a list of questions that you need to get from this consultation with your oncologist what cancer do i have what's the prognosis what are the treatment options what are the clinical trials and research available to me if you're not happy with the person you're sitting with let me get a second opinion you know a second opinion from another doctor from an esteemed center where you're looking at the same information without bias all right so so you, you do that you have to have that strength of mind to ask the right questions initially and then you have to research you have to read okay you have to read whether you have the ability to or your loved one takes up that mantle so now time and time again i'll see the patients just there and then the, the partner the wife the husband with the glasses and the folder and the post-its there with all the research with all the questions you know that's the thing. That's the thing. Having someone in your life that can help in that time of trauma, that initial time, because a lot of patients aren't ready to kind of have a conversation about Jane McClellan's book or talking about nutrition. They need to be in the right mind space to be able to do so. So I think if you have someone on your side, if you have network and that support, the questions to ask, okay, the questions, they are the initial questions to set you off in motion in the right direction, but also then in the time the dust has settled a little bit, how do I take back the reins of control? What can I do? What can I do? Can I eat differently? Can I? Do I have to see a nutritionist? Do I have to see a functional doctor? What's this stuff about off-label supplements? Read, 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 read. With that empowerment, with knowledge, you know, it's it's a massive step in the right direction. Okay, because I guess through engrossing, and, and again, people are different. There are those of course who don't want to know about anything. I'm just going to go and let them do whatever I'm going to do. And but then most people want to know they have the questions they need to have answers they need to speak to someone they need to talk it out talk it through um and that's so much more positive it'll help it'll help deal with the kind of trauma and the, the stress uh, of that initial kind of you know month or so that's great great advice and you know it just all of a sudden while you were answering that i thought of something else yeah if someone's finished with treatment how long can they be on these off label drugs i mean it probably varies but is that something you recommend for people to stay on them for a period of time yeah really really good again amazing question i mean basically it does you're right depends on the scenario um you know for example if one has uh a, a later stage cancer a great response to treatment 
you know, you kind of think the first year is important, the second year is important, the five years are important. You know, there's all these kind of intervals where they're all milestones. So we honestly don't absolutely know how long one should be on the metabolic protocol for because we just haven't defined that. But our intention is to kind of perceive cancer as a chronic disease in a way, right? So, so you know, we talk about blood pressure, Parkinson's, all these kinds of chronic disorders. In a way, cancer can be there for life, but it can be subdued. That's the mission. The mission is to subdue it, to control it, contain it, to make sure it's not in a situation where it can encroach and cause problems. So if we're saying it's there for life, the fight is always on. The fight is always on. There's always, you know, it's always about, you know, optimizing your body, keeping your body as as, as inhospitable, I say, or as amazing a specimen as it possibly can be. And to be honest with you, my patients put me to shame. <laughs> they are the fittest they've ever been and put, you know, <laughs> we're talking about marathons and five kilometer runs and walks and cycling and they look good, they feel good, they, you know, and that's the mission. You, 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 you keep your body in that kind of state for, for, for as long as you can. And so, for me, internally, it feels like it should be an ongoing thing. You should be doing this for a while. And we have patients who have been with us for over six odd years. They're still going strong. Um, but what I say to each individual, it has to be an individual thing. So I kind of say, when you start the protocol, let's do it for about two years. Let's at the two year, let's call two years a checkpoint where we can reflect back and see what we've achieved. You know, are we doing good? Are we happy? Are we bad? Are there disappointments? And if things are going well and we're happy to continue, which happens more often than not, then we, we may amend the protocol. The protocol may look slightly different in terms of how we prescribe things. We may not need to depend on medicines as much if everything else, like I said, with the biomarkers, for example, if insulin resistance scores are optimal um, and you know you may not need any metformin, it might just be the lifestyle maneuvers that do the trick and maintain those numbers. So it's just, again, the value of having the numbers. Um, so it's it's a situational thing, you know, in the individual, like I think, you know, the metabolic approach, whatever it looks like, you know, whether it's lifestyle plus or minus supplements or medicines, and we, we talk about a bunch of supplements as well. Um, it, it, the, the interplay is what, what, what works the best. And that's the message. The message is you can't rely on one thing. And if we can you know, coerce these these pathways and draw upon the knowledge that we have, but optimize what a patient can optimize within their own environment, then that's, you know, one of the most significant things you can do for yourself. So yeah. And I like what you said about treating it like a chronic disease because yeah. I had ovarian cancer 24 years ago. And I still, I mean, I watch myself yeah. to no end, you know, like my sugars and and, you know, the stress and all of it, it's the holistic approach, but there's some people yeah. who want to do treatment and then just be done. Like, I don't want to think about it. I, exactly. you know, so I, I love that you ended on that. That is so powerful. Yeah. And now are you ready for random round? <laughs> I'm ready for random round. I tried to put some thoughts down. It's like, oh, give me random round. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's just quick, quick answers. Okay. Sure. Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is. Having the presence of mind and strength to be who you really are, your true self, to have the reins of control and the bravery to prioritize yourself in the moment, in every moment. And I think that's kind of freedom to me. Love it. The last show you binged and loved. Yeah. Uh, House of the Dragons. <laughs> oh, wow. House of the Dragons, Game of Thrones. Yeah. I loved Games of Thrones. <laughs> A Game of Thrones. I didn't see that yeah, one. Yeah. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Try and calm the mind, um, you know, so to be in a state to kind of internally draw upon, I guess, lessons learned um, from the past and utilize them, you know, in any way you know, to try and assert control and stay focused. Yeah, I'm consciously aware, you know, like with kids, as you know, you know, we kind of self-reflect and we're on our own journey and what do we impart and how do we impart them, especially the dealing with emotions thing, right? And so, you know, it's always very interesting, like, you know, when you're trying to you know, be self-aware and teach them the good mechanisms for dealing with such a thing, you kind of reflect back on yourself and you think, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I'm saying this out loud, but I'm not imparting it on myself. But that's the thing, calmness, focus, drawing upon experience to try and just manage things, you know, in, in the right way. If you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Probably even my dad. Um, so I, I sadly lost my dad two years ago. He was a great man. He basically instilled really important morals and principles in me. Um, the importance of family, the importance of duty, the importance of loyalty, um, and molded me into the person that I'm kind of happy to be today. Um, and so I think, you know, if I could go back and I could talk to him and 
uh, have the opportunity to learn more from him, let alone, you know, be in a well, now being in a more mature state and being a dad to be able to have more in-depth discussions around certain things that I, we never ever had. And I think that would be amazing to be able to do that. I, you know, it, it's, it's one of those where I guess as a, as a kid, you, you don't talk necessarily, not all of us talk to our parents on a deeper level. Um, and we certainly didn't. Uh, but from what I learned from him, it would be awesome to kind of go back and sort of, you know, to delve into deeper, deeper things that you only realize when you become a parent. Mm, so nice. And I'm sorry for your loss. You. What is your favorite go-to snack? So I was going to go healthy first and say satsumas or clementines, but like I, I was, you know, popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're being honest, <laughs> but I'm sorry. What was the first thing you said? Uh, satsumas, uh, the, the clementines, nectarines. Oh, okay. Clementines. The small oranges. Clementines. Yeah. Clementines. Yeah. Okay. Got it. What is one simple thing that brings you joy? Uh, the kids and particularly my son's smile. Like it's, uh, it's just, it's just one of the things that always warms my heart and just gives me loads of happiness. Yeah. What is on your nightstand? Pictures, family, kids, basically just lots of good pictures. What is your favorite form of exercise? Rugby. It's not it's kind of a weirder version of American football. Um, but yeah, so I play a lot of rugby. Uh, so I used to do a lot of boxing. So just, I, I, I guess, I, you know, from an early age, doing sport was my outlet. Uh, my way of trying to just get out the raw, uh, you know, and, and help maintain a decent, you know, personality in a way. <laughs> <laughs> what is one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Family, past and present. Yeah. So for me, you know, uh, I think that's a big thing. People that are here, people that have lost, um, you know, all the generations just, you know, having a sense of roots, of worth, of where you're from, that pride that you can instill into the next generation. That's probably the, the biggest, the biggest thing It's the thing that's kept me helped me through adversity is the strength I've gained from having a close-knit family from a young age. Um, you know, something I'm always conscious about with my own kids, you know, having people to play with or whether it's close friends, close family, whatever it might be, but it kind of keeps you on a path um, and it gives you the inner strength to deal with the adversities that you face in the future. We all fall down, but it's about how you get up, you know, and, and, and that's the kind of one of the big lessons you learn. And I've had that kind of ingrained into me through my teaching. So. Oh, so wonderful. And you mentioned your website. If you can just say what it is so people can can get in touch. That's a really, really good point. And this is where I look less slick uh, because there's a UK version, obviously, as you know. And I'm just going to double check. It's, I think it's careoncology.com um, because it's slightly different in terms of the UK. And do, 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 yes, so careoncology.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Dr. Kuhan, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. And I'm so excited to bring this information to the listeners. Thank you, Haley. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And anything I can do, if any of your listeners reach out, if there's any, any direction I can give or help in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.